everyone. I'm Daniel, and I get the privilege of continuing our series on Genesis today. Now, I should probably start by uh, showing a picture of my awesome quarantine. Uh, as you might imagine, uh, quarantine with a three-year-old is quite an adventure. It's fun because he never runs out of energy. It's also a lot because, did I, did I mention he never runs out of energy? Um, well, actually, until he does, and there's a picture of that too. Anyway, uh, when Tim asked me to speak in the series, of course, my first question was, what's the passage? And when he told me, I think my reaction was something like, <laughs> well played, Tim. Uh, even though today's passage is only three verses in Genesis 2, uh, the Sabbath is a topic where I, I don't understand much. And the little I do understand, um, I'm terrible at practicing. I'm, I'm not kidding. As a software engineering manager in Silicon Valley, I'm really bad at this. But my hope and prayer today is that, that God will teach you and me through his word because I guarantee you Tim didn't pick me because of my understanding or example. I'm pretty sure he asked me to teach on this one because I have a lot to learn and hopefully I can share some of what God's taught me these past few weeks. So let me pray for us and then we'll jump right in. God, I, I just pray that you would... Um, Open our eyes today to your word, that you'd help us to focus on, on your words, not mine, and that, God, you'd teach us about rest and how um, amazing you are. We love you, God, and we just we thank you for this morning. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 2, but first let's recall a little bit of context. So Genesis is an ancient book, uh, thousands of years old, and it was probably written down by Moses. And it starts by explaining the beginning. But it's the beginning of God's redemption story for humanity. It's not a science textbook trying to explain cosmology to a bunch of ex-Egyptian slaves uh, at the end of the Bronze Age. And I also don't think it's trying to explain cosmology to a bunch of Silicon Valley Americans uh, in the digital information age. What it does do is teach us an even more important history about God about who he's revealed himself to be, and about his character, his attributes, his, his plan, his commands, and his interactions with his creation. Now, it starts at the beginning with order, with, with power, and, and with God just demonstrating a rhythm to creation. If you haven't listened to the past few weeks' sermons, I'd highly encourage starting there. Tim's done an excellent job going through the first six days of creation in Genesis 1. And now, in Genesis 2, we're going to look at day seven. So verse one, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, there are a bunch of different understandings of day seven here. I mean, some interpret this as there were seven 24-hour periods of creation. Uh, some see much longer time periods with day seven extending all the way through recorded human history. I'm not going to weigh in here on what's not clear. I, I don't think that's the point. I want to look at a few amazing truths we should be focusing on that are clear. So notice first, it's strangely repetitive. It's almost like reading the words to a song. It's memorable. In the, the phrase, all his work that he had done, is repeated a few times. Creation was and is his work. It was his doing. And that's a huge statement because it speaks to purpose. 
intentionality, intelligence, order. And in contrast to Egyptian theologies, you know, the sun is not God. God's the one who made light together with everything else. And in contrast to some modern theologies, life on earth isn't a fortunate anthropic accident. It's all God's doing. So it's pretty clear that the Bible says that God made everything. And that's the first attribute we need to see here, is that, that God is creative. Now, I, I like how Laura said it a few weeks ago on a takeaway call. God's got the copyright on everything. It's infringement if we don't give him credit. Otherwise, it's fair use. So throughout human history, explorers, scientists, writers, artists, uh, mathematicians, many have by faith sought to discover how and why and better understand the depth and detail of God's creation. Human work has been, been replicating God's work, following his pattern of bringing order and purpose to our surroundings. That's still the case today. And that's why I think it's important to first acknowledge that God is creative and that he is creator. If we seek the answers without acknowledging the author, then our work and our search for understanding, it's ultimately going to be about us, not him. Now, look how the psalmist says in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet, their voice goes out into, the all, into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. See, nature declares that God's work is amazing. And that God is amazing. And as God completed each step, Genesis 1 says, and God saw that it was good. Now, today we're going to focus on day 7, the day that God rested. My hope is that this will help us to acknowledge him and to focus on the point of God's redemptive story, on Jesus. So, let me read Genesis 2, 1 through 3 again. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the, his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. See, God rested from his work. Was God tired? Of course not. That, that doesn't make any sense. Isaiah forty twenty eight says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not, grow, or does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So why did God choose to rest on the seventh day? I don't know. With God, it's hard to expect clear answers to why questions unless he tells us. See, God's ways are not ours, and his understanding is unsearchable but we can learn about him by what he reveals to us through his, his actions and his words. Through them, and especially in Jesus, God reveals who he is. So maybe a better observation is that he did rest. Our God, our God can rest. What does it mean that God rested? I mean, it stands in contrast to his work of creation. And God's creation was good, and then he rested. I think it reinforces an amazing truth about God that we see all throughout Scripture, that he is self-sufficient. Think about that for a minute. God is completely, 100% self-sufficient. 
He doesn't need anything to be good. I mean, God doesn't have to create things to be good. He didn't need to make humans, angels, planets, or anything else to be complete. He doesn't need to be served by human hands or have people worshiping him to be happy. From this passage, we can see that he doesn't need to be working to be God. See, God does good because he is good. It's not the other way around. God doing or creating good things doesn't make him good. He acts out of his nature, out of who he is. So when the text says God rested, it's saying that he was able to complete his work of creation and take a day off. He stopped creating new stuff on the earth while still being God. And that said, the text says God also blessed the day and made it holy. What's that about? That's the Sabbath. If you're well-versed, get it? Never mind. If, if you're well-versed in the Old Testament or Jewish culture, it's very likely you know more about this than I do. Uh, if we look at number four in the Ten Commandments, right after using the Lord's name in vain and before ter- uh, honoring your father and mother, Exodus uh, 20, 8 through 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And this was one of the most visible distinctives of the Israelites as a people after God delivered them out of slavery in, in Egypt. I mean, he made them into a new nation and then told them to rest in him. Where they'd been forced to work seven days a week in Egypt, God didn't just suggest they take a day off of rest every week. He commanded it. And he tied it to the very order and rhythm of his own work and creation. It's also important that it applies to foreigners as well. I mean, there's the sense of where it's not just a command. It's a gift and a promise. Everyone was to observe it. Everyone was supposed to rest. And doesn't this mean, you know, a 14% loss in productivity compared to what they could have done in, in Egypt? How is stuff supposed to get done? From a modern perspective, if you observe this command, then how are you supposed to stay competitive in your career? Maybe I'm just projecting now, but my point is that God commanded a day of rest, and doing it, it would require faith in him, relying on God to take care of their needs. Spoiler alert, it still does take faith. Anyway, along with the other commandments and festivals, to this day, it remains one of the most distinctive practices of Orthodox Jews. So what is the Sabbath or the Shabbat? Well, beyond the commandment version above, there are more details explained in the Torah. What's acceptable, what's not. It's even one of the few laws which carried a sentence of capital punishment when first established. Now, I'll admit that part makes me a bit uncomfortable. And as usual, when the word of God makes us uncomfortable, when the Bible's commands make us feel defensive, it's a good time to stop and spend some time in prayer asking why. And in general, if there's somewhere where the Bible's words have challenged you this week, that's a great topic to discuss in community groups. Anyway, in learning about the Jewish Sabbath, I, I did what any good millennial would do. I looked it up on Wikipedia. Uh, now, I really appreciated the whole Wikipedia article, and I've got to give it credit for starting with a really good curated summary. 
this is from uh, the, the top of the article. It says, uh, Shabbat or the Sabbath is Judaism's day of rest on the seventh day of the week, i.e. Saturday. On this day, uh, relig- religious Jews remember the biblical story describing the creation of the heavens and the earth in six days and look forward to a future messianic age. Now, when I read this, I was really surprised that the definition points right at the Messiah. I mean, sure, the series is called In the Beginning Jesus, and I know the entire Bible points to him, but this was still a little surprising to me that the Sabbath is looking forward to his kingdom. Now, there's a lot of other detail on the page. Like, it's from sundown on Friday until the appearance of three stars Saturday night. Uh, there are a few encouraged activities like, like prayer and sleep and family time and 39 things that rabbis agree are no-nos on the Sabbath. And there's a whole lot more. But the thing I most got out of the article is that the Shabbat, it's serious business. Well, I mean, and kind of a lack thereof, right? Since you're not actually doing any work, but y- you get what I mean. It's seriously and carefully observed. The, the Sabbath has always been an important part of Jewish observance, and it, it remains so today. Now, learning about the seriousness of the Sabbath in Jewish culture was really helpful for me because it, it helped me to better get what was going on in the New Testament, in Matthew 12, 1 through 14, when Jesus actually gets into it with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were all about strictly observing Jewish law. I mean, they wanted to maintain their Jewishness in the face of the reality of Roman occupation. So, Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So I'm not an expert on the Sabbath, but this appears to be one of the 39 things the Wikipedia page said rabbis generally agree you shouldn't do. They're gathering grain. But let's make a few interesting observations here. See, what Jesus and his disciples did was totally fine other than the Sabbath objection. The law in Deuteronomy is that uh, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So the Pharisees weren't objecting to them taking grain because they were hungry. They were likely traveling and or poor. Now, the Pharisees had a problem with Jesus because he's letting the, his followers do this on a Sabbath. And notice also the Pharisees don't say, guys, 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 you shouldn't need to gather grain today. Come on over and we'll give you lunch. No, they're, they're minding other people's business. That's kind of the second thing to notice here, right? The Pharisees, while following all the Sabbath rules themselves, many of which were interpreted rules made by other Pharisees and other rabbis, I'd argue they're not doing very well at rest. I mean, it seems a little like they've missed the forest for the trees. What does checking up on Jesus' followers have to do with observing the Sabbath rest? I mean, following these guys through grain fields doesn't sound like resting in God, like praying, like reading scriptures in the synagogue, and and spending time with family. Let's look at Jesus' response to their accusation. Uh, Verse 3. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read 
in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And, it, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is pretty amazing. Jesus first answers their accusation directly by citing scriptural examples. And then he says, something greater than the temple is here. What could possibly be greater than the temple where the very presence of God was? When Jesus says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, the Sabbath which is commanded as a day of rest under the, the creator of heaven and earth, he says it with authority. Over and over again in the gospel accounts, Jesus makes this, this radical, direct, and shocking claim to be the very presence of God in front of them. He's saying that he wrote the Ten Commandments, that he rested from his work of creation. Jesus is saying he was there in the beginning and that the way the Pharisees are trying to keep the Sabbath holy by, by making sure everyone else is following their strictest rules, that's not what Jesus meant when he wrote the commandment. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus quotes the prophet Hosea where God speaks, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 6.6. This is why I think we've got to be careful about how we see the commands of God. I mean, certainly God's commands are meant to be obeyed, but following God's commands, that doesn't make us good. They're never going to save us from ourselves from our self-focus, and from our sin. God's commands are meant for our good to teach us about his eternal attributes. They reveal the heart and nature of God himself, and critically, they also reveal our heart and our need for God. So, in talking about day seven, about the Sabbath, and about rest, what I'm not going to do is try to explain how all of this applies to us 21st century Christians. I'm not going to try to give a list of do's or don'ts. I don't know whether or not you should go to the grocery store and go shopping on a Saturday. I don't know if it's wise to take weekend call shifts or if it's okay to fix bugs and open source projects on Sundays. Seriously, I'm not going to answer any of those. What I am going to talk about is rest and some things we can observe about God and about ourselves. See, our need for rest, it, it points to an important truth, and that's our identity, that, that we're not God and we need to rest in him. See, God doesn't need to rest, but we, certainly, we humans certainly do. Just look at one of our most basic physical needs, sleep. Isn't that interesting? I mean, almost a third of our entire lives is spent asleep. There's a significant portion of your life where you're unconscious, vulnerable, powerless, and oblivious to the world around you. And think about this. Computers don't need to sleep to function properly. But God purposely made sleep a vital part of the human experience. It's important for things like memory and creativity and learning. In the past few weeks, uh, Tim's taught about physical truths pointing to spiritual ones. And it's true of rest as well. I mean, we need rest emotionally and spiritually. We can't just keep ourselves going on forever. We're not self-sufficient. We are not God. God can rest because he's self-sufficient and he's good. We need rest because we're not. That should humble us. 
It's a reminder that we're not in control, no matter how critical we may think we are. Here's the thing. It's easy to just think we can ignore this. And I'll be honest, I've ignored it a lot through 2020 when working from home. I mean, it's been easy for me to see that there's a lot of stuff at work to do. And if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. Well, to a certain extent, that's probably true. It's also a matter of, of pride and importance. I mean, Sarah's rightly pointed out this to me a few times, like pretty recently, in fact, that I, I need to be willing to take time off, to detach from work and not make that my identity. I've reacted somewhat defensively at times, probably because she's right <laughs> and God's given her, some, given her some wisdom. But uh, the truth is I, I like to think I'm important, that I matter that my life has meaning and, well, that, that I have meaning. But that's the really cool thing about the gospel of Jesus. We have meaning not because of what we do or who we say we are. We have meaning because we're made in God's image and because God says we are his. Our perception of ourselves is, is very important to how we live our lives. If our lives are defined by being a parent, we're going to prioritize our kids over everything else. If we're defined by our work or our legacy, I mean, that's going to take precedence over everything else. But when God commands us to rest, it's to be a Sabbath to the Lord our God. It's to remember that no matter what, we're still not God and he is. And if we think we're at the top of our game and being asked to drop you know, 14% of our time, it's a reminder that God doesn't love us for our accomplishments. But if we see that you know, life is something we don't control, and it's the grace of God to remember that no matter what, we are valued. And our life has meaning because God made us and he loves us. The Apostle John was, was one of Jesus' three closest followers. But in his account of what Jesus did, he refers to himself simply as the one whom Jesus loved. Isn't, isn't that a little bit weird? Here's John 21.7. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. See, the basis of our rest in God is the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus is alive. We are all so inherently evil, loving ourselves more than anyone else. But God is good and he loves us so much that he offers us infinite mercy and grace. Mercy is that he doesn't give us the death we deserve. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, rising from the dead to defeat sin and death itself. Grace is that he adopts us into his family, making us his children and giving us the opportunity to know him, to live with him, and to rest in him. And as John 1, 12, and 13 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that's the first observation I have about rest. We're not God and we need rest. Second, rest is about trust. I mean, how you rest reveals your priorities. What I mean by this is, where do you actually put your hope? What's the thing or person that you look to in order to be happy? I mean, even though we're talking about rest, sleep can be an idol. Work can, can be an idol. Kids can be an idol. Football can be an idol. Netflix can be an idol. House projects can be an idol. Computer games can be an idol. Ow. Ow. Don't get me wrong. I mean, every single one of these things is a good thing. 
but none of them should be a God thing. Is there one that's getting in the way of reading the word or prayer? David writes Psalm 31, and I love it because it's a really cool prayer. I'm just going to read the first five verses now, which say, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Or in another translation, it's, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead me and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. It's a psalm of dependence, of reliance, of trust. And you might notice that verse 5 contains the last words Jesus spoke on the cross. God is faithful and sufficient, but do we trust him? I mean, God commands us to rest in him. Do you and I trust God enough to actually do it? Do we stop and reflect on what God's made, on who he is? See, the Sabbath is a day to reflect on God and his work, not ourselves or our work. So the third observation is that this is about freedom too. And following the rules isn't going to bring you rest. If nothing, nothing I've said so far has made you uncomfortable, you might be a rule follower. I mean, that's fine as long as you realize that following the rules isn't going to earn you any points with God. It's not about the rules. And this is what the Pharisees missed. Immediately after they complained about the grain picking thing to Jesus, this encounter follows in Matthew 12, 9 through 14. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Here Jesus demonstrates both power and compassion. It's the Sabbath. It's the day of rest. And all Jesus has to do to avoid angering the leaders is nothing. Literally nothing. But that's not what he does. He could have told the man, hey, come back tomorrow. But instead, he changes this man's life and heals him right on the spot. Now, the Pharisees, in their zeal to keep all the rules as they strictly understood them, they had forgotten the point of the Sabbath. And by focusing, focusing on their own Sabbath obedience and making sure that others obeyed as well, they actually missed God's command. See, the Pharisees were trying so hard to avoid breaking the rules that they can't handle Jesus actively doing good works and healing the man. What the Bible shows us here is a really clear way of recognizing self-righteousness in ourselves. If we're focused on finding the sins of others that we don't think we commit, we're probably missing the good news of freedom in Christ. Let me say that again. If we're focused on other people's sins we don't commit, we've missed Jesus' freedom from the ones we do. Now, I'm not saying anything goes, do whatever you want. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that our focus should be on Christ because when it is, his spirit helps us sort out the rest. Sanctification, us growing in Christ's likeness, it's a journey. And we should look at the progress in ourselves and others as a way to give glory to God not as a way to criticize others or feed our own pride. 
I think this is generally true of spiritual growth. I mean, if I'm proud at being really good at humility, I'm probably doing it wrong. The same thing with having pride in hospitality or giving away money or even resting in God. I mean, my hope is not that we'll become people who religiously observe a Sabbath. My hope is that we'll be people who love Jesus enough to seek him and to take whatever the next step of obedience is for each of us. So what's that mean practically? Well, for me, it's actually been not working on this message. Now, if you know me, uh, you probably know I'm not someone who loves public speaking. Uh, I can get pretty nervous, and so I try pretty hard to be prepared well in in advance. So ironically, preparing a message about uh, Sabbath rest isn't the most restful activity for me. And since work's been pretty busy too, my step of trust has actually been to set it aside and not work on it for one day during the past few weekends. Now, I'm not saying this to tell anyone else what they need to do. Uh, It's been a good, if not somewhat ironic, step for me, though. Anyway, I I think when it comes to rest, there's a spectrum. I mean, we can be on one side saying, uh, what Sabbath? That's kind of where I was at. Are you closer to that? Are you to feeling like, no, I'm totally doing it right. I, I observe a Sabbath every weekend. I follow all the rules. See, I'm more of the former, which means I need to take more intentional steps toward trusting God in this. And if you're a rule follower, used to the Sabbath, you may need to ask if you're really trusting in God or just following a set of rules. Now, I really don't know what this might mean for you. I don't know your work responsibilities, how many jobs you have, or your on-call schedule. And if you're a parent or a caretaker, that, that kind of responsibility just doesn't disappear for a day every week. But my hope is that we would trust God and live free. I mean, maybe this week, that's just a few minutes in prayer asking, what does it look like for me to rest in Jesus? Jesus granted us a free and full pardon, though it cost him everything. Let's let's use that freedom to grow in him. And that brings me to one more aspect of rest, and that's our security, that Jesus offers us true rest. Now, what I mean by security is the good news that since we did nothing to earn God's favor, there's rest in knowing that God still loves us because he is faithful. His love for us is as certain as Jesus rising from the dead, as certain as the sun coming up in the morning. If indeed Jesus is risen from the dead, then we too can have life in him. Let's look at the passage immediately before the Sabbath encounter in Matthew 12. Let's look at the end of, of Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious, gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the, my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Let's admit it. It's been a tough year. The pandemic is a weight. Loneliness is a weight. Grief is a weight. But the biggest weight is our sin. And Jesus offers the greatest exchange, rest for our souls, and the security of knowing that God loves us and will never let us go. Jesus isn't offering us an easy life. 
but he is offering life. He's not recruiting the best and the brightest. He's looking for the weak and the broken, the lonely and the overlooked. And Jesus says that if we'll come to him, he'll carry the burden that we can't carry. He offers us rest. Now, I know that's a long way to come from Genesis where where God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. But this Genesis passage is quoted over and over in the Bible. And nature itself speaks to truths about God and about us. God is creative and he is self-sufficient. His rest is good. And unlike God, we need rest and our identity can only be satisfied in God himself. See, how we rest reveals our priorities, whether we look inward to ourselves or upward to him. The gospel gives us freedom because following rules is never going to bring us to God. It's only in Jesus that we can find our security and the true rest for our souls. So uh, that's it. Thanks everyone for listening today. Uh, I hope you have a great weekend and I hope to see you on the takeaway call at 1130. Thanks.